This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. Donald Trump is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination in the 2024 U.S. election and, as of last week, a legally confirmed sexual abuser. Today, we're bringing you an episode of The Guardian's Politics Weekly America podcast, which looks at the sexual abuse case and the ethics around American news organisations continuing to cover his conspiracy theories and election lies. Here's Politics Weekly America host Jonathan Friedland. On Tuesday, a jury in New York found that the former president, Donald Trump, sexually abused the magazine writer E. Jean Carroll in the late 1990s and then defamed her by branding her a liar. While the federal jury did not find Trump raped Carol, it found Trump liable for one count of battery for sexually abusing Carol and one count of defamation. It also awarded Carol a total of $5 million in damages. That means the front runner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination is now legally defined as a sexual predator. And yet 24 hours after the verdict was in, Trump was being beamed into the homes of millions of potential voters when he was invited onto a CNN town hall. And did I didn't do anything else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can, who I, this woman can I ask you... Given Plenty of critics have questioned the wisdom of treating like any other candidate a man twice impeached, once indicted on a federal charge, and now found to be a sexual abuser by a jury of his peers. So how should the media cover Donald Trump as he is held accountable, at least in the courtroom, for assorted misdeeds? Will Trump pay any political price? Or is 2016 simply repeating itself with E. Jean Carroll's court case win just a rerun of the Access Hollywood tape when Trump was heard bragging about grabbing women? I'm Jonathan Friedland and this is Politics Weekly America. When the verdict came just a couple of hours after the jury went into deliberations, it was hard to think, and you know, we didn't know what the verdict was at that point, only that the verdict would be announced very soon. Margaret Sullivan is a columnist for The Guardian US. She's also been the media columnist for The Washington Post and the public editor of The New York Times. She followed the court case in Manhattan closely. Remember, this was a nine-person jury and it was six men and three women. So there was, you know, some reason to think that there might be some arguments and some differences of opinion. But it came so quickly that I assumed at that point that it would be coming down in E. Jean's favor 
And indeed it did. And I felt, you know, just a sense that there had been some accountability. With Donald Trump, it's very frustrating to think about him and be in a country where he has been the president and where he's such a dominant force because he does so many things that are appalling. And yet there doesn't seem to be much accountability. So the idea that here, after some 26 women have accused him of sexual misconduct of one kind or another, that there was actually going to be some accountability and some money. I thought some justice was being done here. Before we actually dive into the specifics of the case and the impact it's likely to have and wider questions for the media, you're in a small group of people who've actually met the person at the centre of all this, E. Jean Carroll. You met her fairly recently. She had gone public with her accusations by then. What was your read of her? How did she seem to you at the time? Well, I met her at a party at a home of a mutual friend, Molly Jongfast, who's a journalist and podcaster. And I didn't know that E. Jean was going to be there, but I certainly knew who she was. In fact, I subscribed to her Substack newsletter and, you know, I kind of follow her. I've found her to be an interesting personality. I found her to be extremely charming, upbeat. I described her in my Guardian column as effervescent, and I think that was true. I think we have to remember that people can have a very upbeat, cheerful, happy presence in a social setting and still have dealt with significant uh, difficulties and trauma in their lives. And I think those things are true of her. So let's just spell out the details for people who haven't been uh, immersed in in all of it. Uh, the jury found that Donald Trump had sexually abused uh, E. Jean Carroll, who's an advice columnist, magazine writer, in a department store in New, in, in New York in a changing room there 27 years ago. It did not find that Donald Trump had raped her, but it did find him liable for defaming Carol by branding her a liar when she first went public uh, with her uh, accusations against him. Also important to stress, we're using the word liable rather than guilty because this was a civil case, not a criminal case. It also means the punishment, there's no question of jail time or anything like it. The punishment is financial. And when we say financial, he's been ordered to pay her about $2 million in damages for uh, sexual abuse, and then another three million on top of that for defamation. All of that, you know, in the world before Donald Trump, we'd have said that was terminal for any politician, such a, a, a judicial outcome. Instead, we're talking about how, you know, what, what damage this does to him. But there is particular focus on the damage Donald Trump did to himself with this video deposition that he gave. I mean, you, just break it down for us, but it, it was really striking. Yes. I mean, in his deposition, well, he said a number of things that were should have been shocking. But of course, with Trump, we can no longer be shocked because there's just been so much of this. But one of the things he said, he was asked about this infamous statement of his that was captured on audio some years ago, in which he bragged about being able to grab women by their private parts, let's say, oh, that's a euphemism. And he said, well, you know, very casually, he responded, well, you know, that's true. Historically, stars can do that. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been 
largely true, not always, but largely true, unfortunately or fortunately. And he hesitated and said, unfortunately or fortunately. So in other words, he actually thought perhaps that was a good thing, that he and other supposed stars could sexually molest women at will and with impunity. And, uh, I, you know, it's just pretty tough to hear that. I, I think he has encouraged a kind of mass misogyny, you know, unleashed it. And that's, it's really tough. I mean, that was a standout moment. And it represented a change, actually, in what he said at the time, when initially he said it was just locker room talk. He didn't try and defend the substance of what he said. Now, he was in this new position of actually saying, well, you know, I'm right. And so that was different. But the other thing that leapt out was this, uh, what he said when presented with a photograph. A black and white photograph that we've marked as DJT23. And I'm going to ask you, is this the photo that you were just referring to? I think so, yes. Involving him and, you know, I think more than one woman. But you just tell us what he, what, how, how that played out, because it was a jaw-dropper. It was. So he, you know, Trump has maintained that he doesn't know E. Jean Carroll. Never met her, doesn't know her. So he was shown a photo of a couple of different people, including himself and E. Jean Carroll. That's... Uh, I guess her husband, John Johnson. And he was asked to identify the people in the photograph, and he pointed to her and said... That's Marla, yeah. That's that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, that, the oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is that's Marla. That's my wife. And, you know, there is a sort of a resemblance, but that was not his wife. And the fact that he he had also said many times you know, about different women, you know, this was his big defense. She's not my type. And yet he was referring to Eugene in the same breath as his wife, Marla. So it was, it truly was a jaw dropping moment. I mean, this idea that sexual assault is somehow dependent on whether or not the victim is your type is, is, is jaw dropping in itself. But yes, rather undermined if you can confuse the woman who's brought this complaint against you, accusation against you, with your own second wife. And also, I mean, we should say he was dishing this out in the courtroom. I mean, when he gave the deposition, he was saying to one of the lawyers, you're not my type either. A really absurd moment because Roberta Kaplan is a very well-known, very well-respected attorney who happens to be a lesbian and is very out. And so, you know, it was even more absurd for him to be saying that to her. I mean, the whole thing was, uh, I think, pretty obnoxious from a feminist perspective. Well, I mean, obnoxious seems to be absolutely the apposite word. In terms of the way, you know, what it might mean for feminism, we should just say something about the background to uh, the case being brought at all. And that's because uh, it was only made possible, as I understand it, because of a New York state law enacted last year in the wake of the Me Too movement, which temporarily lifted what had been the statute of limitations on sexual abuse complaints. It meant you couldn't open up uh, a case relating to an incident that happened like this one did 27 years ago. Instead, it said, OK, there's a one-year period in which you uh, survivors of sexual assault can bring civil lawsuits like this one against abusers. I mean, in the so that's there, that sort of opening. I'm just wondering if the fact that this did succeed, is it your sense that this will now encourage... 
other women in general to bring about cases, but also perhaps other victims of Donald Trump? Well, it's very difficult for women to come forward in this way. And, you know, you'll often hear from people who don't like these kinds of suits, you know, for example, why didn't you scream? Why did it take you so long? You know, somehow there's this victim blaming in which victims of sexual misconduct, assault, rape, whatever it may be, are supposed to behave in a particular way. And they should be ready immediately to go to the police and bring charges. And, you know, that's not on them. I mean, it's really very fortunate that there was this lifting of the statute of limitations that E. Jean Carroll was, as I said earlier, I think very brave and courageous and ready to do this. And she said in her immediate remarks after the verdict, this is for all the women who have not been believed. We did away with the perfect victim concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, The perfect victim always screams. She always goes to the police. She always writes the date in her diary. She always folds up and uh, is a sad person. Uh, We smash that concept. Now, to answer your question more directly, will it cause more women to come forward? I think it's still very, very tough for people to do that. And I, you know, there have been a lot of women who who have done that. I, I don't know that it will open any sort of legal floodgates, but I do think that it there's an element of this that brings accountability that's that's more broad. It doesn't put money in their pockets, it doesn't solve their whatever traumatic experiences they've had. But it does say a jury, uh, mostly male jury, found that Trump was liable here and found it with very little discussion or argumentation. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, of course, and wholly predictably, Donald Trump did not accept the verdict. Instead, in a video he put on his own platform, he said the whole thing was a scam, part of a witch hunt. What else can you expect from a Trump-hating, Clinton-appointed judge? And blame the case being brought in uh, his own, originally, home state of New York. Which is probably the worst place in the United States for me to get a fair trial. I mean, it did recall to me, just hearing him say that, 
this notion that he did say back in 2016 that he could really shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and and his supporters would still support him. He is clearly confident there that he can just dismiss anything he does uh, and say it's some kind of witch hunt and his supporters will side with him. What's your read of of what this does to uh, his standing, yes, with his own supporters, with Republicans who are choosing a nominee for 2024? The initial note, you know, reviews seem to be coming in saying essentially it's probably not going to damage him with the people whose votes he needs to be the Republican presidential nominee. Is that how you see it? It is. I I think that his most fervent supporters, the so-called MAGA, Make America Great Again Republicans, who are his, you know, sort of fervent base, will not be affected by this. They believe that he is the victim of a witch hunt. They believe what he says. They have no interest in what facts may bring to bear. I don't think he'll be damaged by that. And that does speak to whether he can gain the nomination as the Republican nominee for for president. But I do think that there are reasonable people who will be affected by this, who are not staunch Democrats, who are not on the left, but who have serious doubts about Trump anyway. And this may make them feel like he's an even more unacceptable choice for them in a general election. And remember, most likely, I think this will be a Joe Biden versus Donald Trump election again, which is mind boggling to begin with. And Biden has beaten him in the past. I always say that journalists like myself should not make predictions because we're very bad at it. So um, I I can't say what will happen or even that that will be the, the race, but it's shaping up that way. Yeah, I mean, and the thought that comes to mind is that the there will be women who, in other circumstances, might well have voted Republican or voted for Donald Trump. And this might just make some of those voters pause. But all of this has created a sort of predicament for the media. And you are such a long time and, and seasoned observer of the media. This is what I wanted to gauge your view on is how the media copes with somebody who can rely on this solid support, no matter what he says, true or not, uh, support of, you know, some 40% of the country, 37, 40% of the country, sometimes more. You've got somebody now who's been impeached twice. He's indicted in New York. Uh, he's a, you know, denies reality in the form of the result of the 2020 election. And now there is a legal finding that he is a sexual predator. And yet, nevertheless, despite all that, he was given two hours of prime time on a main uh, stream cable network, namely CNN, for a so-called town hall meeting this week. Lots of people have been, you know, ahead of it, were wondering whether that was a good decision by the network. We'll come to that. But just first off, you know, did you watch it? What were you expecting of it? And did did it deliver what you uh, anticipated? Well, I was one of those who said in advance that this was a very bad idea on CNN's part. We've seen it before. Trump will always lie. He can. He's you know very skilled at overcoming any kind of questioning or effort to fact check in real time. And so when we had this debacle on CNN this week in which uh, an interviewer made a a good effort to fact check him and hold him accountable and he just talked over her and got his views out there. I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you're a nasty person, I'll tell you. (laughs) Was cheered 
by an audience when he said outrageous things. This is all completely predictable. And that's why I feel strongly that there should not be these sort of live events. Of course, we need to cover him. Of course, we need to cover every candidate and cover them rigorously, but not in this way of letting them essentially run a rally for two hours on a cable news network. It, you know, it's absolutely wrong. Was was the crucial factor there the this the choice of audience this audience that was made up of a lot of Trump supporters Republicans and and independents inevitably that group was going to include people who really liked him even people who were officially classified as undecided would then say to him how much they admired him and so on I, I wonder if, if it had been a genuinely undecided audience uh, whether you would have had a similarly dim view of the whole exercise well the audience made it worse They're very stupid people you once said that using the that using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge uh, just could not happen you you said that when sure. you were in the That's Oval when Office I was president. To, so why is it different now that you're out of office I'm not president. <laughs> no question, because, you know, they were cheering his lies and cheering his further defamation of E. Jean Carroll. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings him up and within minutes you're playing hanky-panky in a dressing room, okay? You know, all of that was dispiriting, to say the least. I think that if there had been a mixed audience of, you know, Democrats and Republicans and independents, it would have been probably more raucous in some ways. I don't think it would have addressed the essential question, which is that Donald Trump is going to get up there and dominate and lie and parry and not be able to be fact-checked. I mean, that was the core issue. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. There's no law that says this format is the only way to go. You can actually do a pre-recorded interview and intersperse facts with it and do give a lot of context and air what he has to say, but surround it with reality. So the problem, it's almost a sort of issue of form. The one thing that you can't do is, the, is as it were, the live fact check mid-interview, because there's this torrent of falsehoods that come in. They're, they come in such quick succession that it's almost impossible to sort of halt things to great. I mean, just to throw out a few, he uh, said that he had finished building the wall at the southern border. I did finish the wall. I built a wall. I he built hundreds of miles of wall. He said that he'd been somehow prevented um, from testifying in the Carroll case. In fact, when he absolutely just had the choice and chose not to, he repeated the claims about 2020. If you look at True the Vote, they found millions of votes on camera, on government cameras, where uh, they were stuffing ballot boxes. So with all of that... He said that Democrats are, uh, want to kill the baby after they are born in support infanticide. Remember the debate with Hillary Clinton? I said, rip the baby out of the womb at the end of the ninth month. They will kill the baby in the ninth month was one unchecked claim uh, he made uh, and, and, you know, calling Nancy Pelosi crazy. There's a whole mixture of things, he says. In a way, is it just this form is impossible when you're dealing with someone who has such a disregard for truth? I think it is. I really, I object to using this form for him. It might have been something that worked in the past. It might be something that works with other candidates. You know, you could probably put Mike Pence uh, the former vice president up there and, you know, be able to treat him as a, you know, normal candidate. But Trump is very different. And I, I find it very 
destructive. It's, it's not good for democracy. It's not good for the public interest. So your, your approach would be a more structured, even sort of scripted format where you have clips of Donald Trump that have been recorded and then they can be analysed you know, in the broadcast as they happen, as the audience hears them at home. Right. There's a linguist, uh, George Lakoff, who talks about something called the truth sandwich, which is a way to counter propaganda. And that means that you present something truthful, you allow the lie or the propaganda to you say, here's what's being said, and then you fact check it. So you're surrounding the lie with facts and that that is probably the best way to counter this sort of thing. But in the format that we're talking about, that is not possible. What about for big live events and rallies? The media was very criticised in 2016 for really obsessing over those rallies, even to the point of showing long pictures of the empty podium waiting for Donald Trump to arrive. That too presents, just covering that, broadcasting one of those rallies, that also presents that same problem, doesn't it? Because he again gives, I've got, you know, I've been at them. He, He just gives this flow of falsehoods, one after another. Should the networks collectively abandon live coverage of political rallies? I mean, maybe all of them, but certainly Donald Trump ones because of this truth problem. Or is that just difficult because it's news that a former president is speaking? We can get at the news of these rallies, if there is any, without broadcasting them live and fully. Again, there's 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 no law that says we have to take a rally and put it on television. I think, though, that it's important to understand what underlies that, which is that, you know, Trump himself called himself a ratings machine. And there, you know, I'm sure that CNN town hall probably did get a big audience. So there's a kind of a corporate desire to use Trump as a way to generate interest and outrage. And so there's that is pushing against the journalistic imperative of, you know, sticking as close as possible to the truth. And just, I mean, this is outside the media question, but just looking at the Republican field, because the first hurdle he has to overcome is to win the nomination. We've agreed here that the media have a huge problem knowing how to handle this man. Have you seen any evidence that his Republican opponents, rivals for his party's nomination, have developed any kind of strategy or or method for dealing with him and taking him on? No, I think that he has an iron grip on the party and that when someone like the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, does, you know, stick his head up above the surface and, and say, I'm running, I mean, I think that Trump will eat him alive. And that'll be true of anyone else who comes along. So, you know, no, I don't think that the Republicans have found a way, if they indeed want to, to push back in any meaningful way against Trump. Margaret, we do always like to ask our guests what we call a what else question, something completely different to uh, the rest of our conversation. Although this actually does still uh, focus on New York and on a courthouse, because 
Congressman George Santos was arrested on Wednesday after he turned himself in. I hear the little laugh in response. The congressman has been charged with seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, two counts of making materially false statements to the House of Representatives. Listeners to this will be familiar with this man because he gained prominence, not for particularly any of those things, but just for having invented whole parts of his supposed resume, claiming to have been all kinds of things he wasn't and to have done things he didn't do. He's pleaded not guilty to all of these charges and went full Trump by saying the whole case is a witch hunt, absolutely quoting from uh, the master himself. Uh, He was released after someone posted half a million dollars in bail. I mean, legally, uh, we can uh, speculate what what the future holds for uh, George Santos and if he's going to be able to get out of this. But just on the politics of it, for the Republican Party to have two people who face such legal peril, does this represent any problem for Republicans, for House Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy? Or again, is this now just a thing for the Republicans where they can say everything is just political and laugh it off? I think that Republicans do recognize that Santos has to go eventually and that they are quite critical of what's happened, you know, in terms of his lies coming out about just, as you said, just sort of making up a whole persona and getting elected. And by the way, just an aside, if the news media had been on its toes before the campaign or during the campaign, he might well have not been elected. But uh, that did not happen. And that's a, a failure. But I, yes, I think it does make a statement about where the Republicans are right now. There's a sort of denial of reality, inability or lack of desire to hold people within the party accountable. It has kind of spread and metastasized from Trump. Margaret Sullivan, thank you so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thank you. My pleasure. That was host of The Guardian's Politics Weekly America podcast, Jonathan Friedland, with Guardian US columnist Margaret Sullivan. This episode was produced by Daniel Stevens, and the executive producer was Maz Ebtahaj. If you enjoyed this episode of Politics Weekly America, you can subscribe to it wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and we'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story tomorrow. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we're at the forefront of new technology. We're redefining the aerospace industry by using disruptive technologies and new energies to reduce our environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. We're bringing the world together, collaborating, and acting on climate change. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at Airbus.com.